ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. In right field. There's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carroll into right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Thursday, September 30th. It's Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. He's Jeff Conine. I'm Arm Layton. And we are very close. Very, very close to the postseason. And there is still a lot up in the air from the wild card divisions awards, basically everything besides the, the Shohei Otani award in the AL and Trey Mancini winning comeback player of the year. We've got a lot to talk about for like the last time and give our final thoughts here. And then also a little bit about those last few games and how you try to sneak in there. It's like the playoffs before the playoffs. So Jeff, I'm excited to talk about this little appetizer we have before we really hit October. Well, this is the big time of the year. This is what it's all coming down to. Uh, Baseball is just a marathon. It's a 162 game season. And it's quite uh, remarkable that we've got with only four or five games left. We've got all this to talk about and all this stuff still undecided before postseason starts next, uh, probably next Monday or Tuesday, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's the crazy thing is I feel like generally, I mean, there's always going to be some things up in the air, but I feel like we normally know a little bit more about who the Cy Young winner is or who the MVP is. Usually someone's running away with it a little bit. And the crazy thing is, is if Shohei Otani wasn't hitting and pitching at a high level, we would be talking about a a crazy MVP race in the AL as well. It's just, if Shohei Otani wasn't putting together the best season we've ever seen, essentially, we'd have a big race over there. So I think it's a testament to the talent we've seen across the game this year. Uh, And there's a lot more parity, which makes it fun. Um, the other thing that I didn't even brief you on that I feel like we have to talk about, though, is that the Cardinals won 17 games in a row now. And I don't know why I didn't mention that as a talking point before we recorded, but you have played on a lot of teams, successful and teams that have struggled. Can you kind of contextualize as a player 17 years, however many games that is, how hard it is to win 17 in a row uh, for a major league baseball team at this point of the season, too? It's it's astronomical. I mean, uh, I don't know what my longest win streak has ever been as far as being on a team. And you know, I was on some pretty good teams, but you talk about winning two series in a row or three series in a row, for that matter, you've got a nine game winning streak. And that is like almost unheard of. And now we've got 17 games straight. The Cardinals somehow, some way, every single year seem to figure it out. And they have got some monsters down the stretch. You know, Paul Goldschmidt has been, you know, we talked about uh, some of the other guys that are mentioned for the National League MVP honors. Paul Goldschmidt's come out of nowhere here and really carried this team offensively uh, right into the thick of things. They've already clinched a spot in the postseason. So after being eight and a half back. They were dead. They were dead in the water two and a half weeks ago. No one was even talking about the Cardinals two and a half weeks ago. And here we go, 17 straight, and now they've already clinched a playoff spot. So that's what you got to love about baseball. You can't predict these things. You can have all the predictions you want a month before the the season ends and, and do all these prognostications. And a lot of times they're wrong. Yeah. 
Most of the time. I, I Actually, Adam Wainwright made a joke about it. He said, I think Fangraphs had us at a negative 4,000% chance to make the playoffs. Uh, but I mean, they were probably sub 1% if you're eight and a half games back in August. And it kind of shows you it's hard to put percentiles on, on things like that. In your experience, have you ever seen some that kind of a just explosion down the stretch to get into the postseason? Like, where does this rank in what you've seen uh, since you started playing in the big leagues? I mean, it's got to be top three of all time, maybe. I think if you wow. think about <clears throat> what they've done in the final stretch of the season, we're talking about they started this about uh, a week into September and they were basically dead in the water. Like I said, they, they had no nothing to play for. And all of a sudden, two and a half weeks later, they've already clinched a spot with four games to go. Uh, I can only talk about it on the other side of it when we had the implosion that uh, <laughs> I was on that 2007 Mets team and we lost a seven game lead with 17 to play. I mean, that's was unheard of at the time too. That was the largest collapse in that short a time in baseball history. So uh, I can, I can, I can speak intelligently about that, but I just can't fathom coming down to the last two weeks of the season and having a winning streak like the St. Louis Cardinals have had. Well, the amazing thing too, is we talk about, they were dead in the water and they weren't totally dead at the deadline, but they weren't going to go make some crazy moves and mortgage the future to try and uh, put lipstick on a pig because their, their ACE was hurt too. They're doing this without Jack Flaherty, who is by far, you know, their ACE until Adam Wainwright stepped up and has looked like one in his own regard at age 40, but that was their guy. That is their guy. And their shortstop Paul DeYoung has struggled mightily, but they've had all these guys step up. They have the number one defense in the entire league, uh, no matter what metric you look at. They have guys like Tyler O'Neill just exploding. You mentioned Goldschmidt. He looks like the guy that was in Arizona, how good he's been. And that is a huge boost for them. And what really amazes me, though, is their acquisitions at the deadline. They went and got John Lester and Jay Happ, 37 and 38 years old, respectfully. That's what they that's what they that's what they did. And that's been what they needed. Like that's how is that? Well, when you, when you look at the way the culture in St. Louis, uh, they were the way they put together teams, right? They, they put together these teams that usually don't have a whole lot of superstars, you know, after Pujols left, like obviously he was a superstar, but when you look at the, the teams they put together since he's, he's left, there's no like, um, well, I guess Arenado is a superstar. That was, this Gold, is their Goldsmith first full year with him. What's that? I was to say that's their first full year with Arenado too. So I think that's really helped ignite them for sure. Right. And it's um, they just know how to put personalities together and create a winning culture, a winning clubhouse in St. Louis. They've done it year after year after year. It's crazy. We talk about uh, Tampa Bay and we talk about Oakland and and how they do it on with the low payrolls. But when you talk about just putting together teams, quality teams all the time, St. Louis has a knack of doing that. And it's a model for other organizations. I mean, they should other organizations to figure out what are the Cardinals doing every single year? What do they compose their roster of? And like we said, we came up with Lester and Hap coming in. Uh, they didn't. I don't think anybody looked at that at the trade deadline and said, "Oh my God, watch out for the Cardinals now because they're gonna they're gonna it's gonna be a barnstorming crazy finish to the season." They added veteran leadership who could teach the young guys how to pitch and how to be professionals and how to play and how to act down the stretch because they've both been there. 
that's what I'm really excited about with the Mariners too, to get into. Cause another team that, I mean, the Cardinals have those, those good players. Now and you talk about just having the ability to mesh these guys. Goldie by all accounts is, is an awesome dude. Arenado uh, seems like a really good uh, guy for the clubhouse by you know, everything I've heard and read about him. You look at those personalities, Wainwright, Yachty, those are, it really works. And there's so much more than go than what meets the eye or what's in the statistics when it comes to a winning team. And, that's my only explanation right now when I look at the Seattle Mariners who are surging, absolutely surging. They have already smashed their over-under going into the year, which I think was in the low 70s. They're encroaching on 90 wins, and they're a half game out of the AL wild card with four games left. What makes no sense to me is that they don't excel at anything, really, like other than winning ball games, which is the most important thing. They have a negative 50 run differential, which is obviously not very good, but also doesn't tell the whole story. They are last in batting average. They are towards the back of the league in just about every offensive category. They are towards the back of the league in just about or middle of the pack at best. And most uh, pitching categories other than walks, they don't walk anybody, which I think is very telling. Even little league coaches will, will tell you what walks can do to you, but that's about it. Good situational hitting and they just win games. How do you explain a team like the Mariners that is playing some guys that are more perceived as role players guys are having good years, but the numbers aren't that crazy. How are they winning so many games? Well, when you look at, uh, we talk about the, we've had a number of conversations about the role of a manager and um, the importance of wins and and winning teams. And and we've talked about uh, does a manager really matter? And I think when you look at Scott Service and what he's done with this team, you can unequivocally say that it matters in Seattle right now. Scott Service has done a remarkable job of piecing together this lineup, this uh, team. Uh, take their last win. They had a guy start that had pitched two days before and yeah. got shelled through 54 pitches. And he's like, you know what? This is going to be our best option right now. And it's going to be an all hands, all hands on deck uh, bullpen type day. We're going to let you go as far as you can. He pitched four innings. The bullpen took over and they ended up winning the game. And it's like that seems to be happening again and again and again. They lead the league in, in one run games. And like you said, minus 50 run differential. That's not just like five or six runs. Yeah that you've been outscored. That's 50 runs. That's a crazy big run differential. And for a team to be even speaking about making the playoffs, that is pretty remarkable. And if Scott service doesn't win manager of the year in the the American league, then uh, the the award shouldn't be given out. (laughs) I agree with that. And and that's something I didn't even think about really is what they've done at the end here. He's got to be the guy that wins that award. And uh, it's been really amazing uh, what they've been able to do down the stretcher. Cause I wouldn't want to run into him, but at the same time, who, who on their team really scares you? Right now, Mitch Nobody Hanniger. scares him. Mitch Hanniger's a monster, but are you scared of Mitch Hanniger? Maybe right now, but like, no. On the pitching side, who are you throwing? Who are you throwing in a wild card game? Who are you throwing in a seven-game series? Have we seen a team, like, on paper that's this mediocre? Like, not to be rude, but do what they're doing and potentially make the playoffs? Like, when's the last time a team like this, besides last year's shortened season with the Marlins, like, when's the last time a team like this is – forced their way into the playoffs and everybody looks and is like, how'd they do this? Is there a time that you can relate to in this? I can't, I can't think of another team that, uh, you know, when I was reading an article and said the last time a team made the playoffs with a negative run differential was 2007. So that's 14 (laughs) years ago. Um, It just doesn't happen very often. I mean, 
playoff teams are are usually the the top of the league in just about everything, every statistical category. They definitely do not have negative run differentials. No. Uh, and if they do have something that's out outstanding, it's usually pitching. And like you said, the Mariners are 10th out of 15th in the American League in pitching as far as ERA is concerned. Uh, they're way down at the bottom in in uh, every offensive category, except for home runs. They've hit some home runs. They're almost yeah, they 200 home runs. home runs on the season, so they can bang the ball a little bit. And it's kind of spread out like the, the San Francisco Giants. Their lineup uh, is very spread out as far as contributions. So mm-hmm. they're getting contributions from a lot of different spots, one through nine. So that lends to their record and how they're doing in these one-run games. Guys are coming up with clutch hits, and on the days they're getting beat, they're getting blown out. I like what you said there because it spurred a thought in me because the one thing that they are doing well is is coming through with runners in scoring position, coming through in clutch spots. And that's something that a lot of people will say is luck, and some of it might be luck. But I think what lends some probability and, and helps you be successful with runners in scoring position is balance that you allude to through the lineup because – it's not always going to be your, your cleanup hitter up with the runner in scoring position and two outs. It's not always going to be uh, one of your top five hitters. It's going to be the eight guy sometimes or in the AL, it's going to be the nine guy sometimes. But the interesting thing is with the Mariners, they don't have any superstar or anybody jumping off the page. But as you mentioned, it's pretty well distributed where there's a lot of different guys that at least have the capability of doing damage and they're doing it in the big spots and they don't have that gaping hole in their lineup. I know it's the major leagues, but is there a a merit to that where you don't have anybody that excels, but you have at least no steep drop off at any point? Like the steepest drop off for them right now is their rookie sensation that has struggled in the beginning and has been coming alive in Jared Mm. Kelnick. You know what? You look at, uh, I didn't delve deep into the metrics in this whole thing, but, and there are sometimes are not a lot of metrics in winning baseball games, uh, men on second base with nobody out. Do, do they get that guy over to third base? Is there sack flies that score that run? Uh, there's a lot of little things in, you know, I know I played against Scott service and I know him fairly well, but to pick his brain, at least virtually, I think it would be, yes, we're doing all the little things correctly because we have to, we have to do all the little stuff right in order to win baseball games. So they're getting guys over, they're getting guys in, they're probably hitting and running a little bit. They don't have much team speed. They really don't have any stolen bases. So it's not like they've got a bunch of uh, fast guys that are really creating havoc on the base paths. Uh, My guess is that they are, they've been taught to run the bases. Well, there, that's something that, you know, uh, is a lost art in this game now, especially in the big leagues. It's crazy how badly the bases are run nowadays. And I think Scott service has probably taught them how to run the bases the right way and be uh, efficient and be aggressive when they need to be aggressive. And that's why they're scoring runs and winning games like that. I think it's, it's a really good point you bring up there about base running because I think the basketball equivalent is somewhat where you see defense is so bad in basketball nowadays because defense doesn't get you recruited. You got to really be good against good competition, but how do you turn heads? You make plays, you score, you do those things. Baseball, we talk about the showcase effect. That's something I've always talked about. It's not about grinding out ABs. It's about putting up the exit velo. We've talked about this. It's about, uh, running the fastest 60. It's not about getting a good jump. They don't care about the jump you get. It's about what a 60 speed is. It's about what his exit velo is, what his you know, throwing velo is. And that's 
really not encouraging the development of the little parts of the game. And I think that's why we're seeing it start to make its way up to the big leagues. We're about a decade into this hardcore showcase era now, and we're seeing those players uh, make their way to the big leagues. And I think when you look at the base running, it's not something that you're able to put a value on very easily outside of this is how many bags they stole, but you see guys taking the extra base and doing the right things. For example, the Marlins, They've struggled mightily this year for, for a lot of reasons, but one of the things that's been the most frustrating for me having to cover them is they've been picked off 22 times, 22 times. And they have speed, they have speed, but you're giving away outs. Uh, the last night they are two nights ago. I would be for the people listening extra innings. I know you hate the rule, but how do you just kill yourself in extra innings? Get picked off, <laughs> Get picked off. Second base. They're giving you a gift and you're like, Nope, don't want it. I don't want it. Pick me off. Picked off. That's 22 next most in major league baseball. 13, 13. You, you can't win like that. You can't give away outs. That's like inexcusable. That. That's what I said. As if you get picked off at second base, talk about momentum. I think that's a big thing too, is the Mariners are capitalizing on momentum. I also think that when you're giving away outs like that, it's almost like cutting the momentum at the kneecaps. It just dissipates. It's gone. At least that's how it feels not being on the field. Can you talk about what it feels like off the field or when you're on the field, when you get somebody picked off, you feel like a rally starting. Now you're back to nobody on and out. I mean, it changes everything. It does change everything, but I think teams like that, they're used to it. They're used to seeing they've been picked off 22 times. It's not something new to them. It's not like in a big situation. Oh my gosh, that never happens. But, uh, and I think that's the biggest problem in baseball right now is I think that's become the norm. It's like, I don't think people really care. And when you talk about efficient base running and um, situational hitting and these things that actually are important to win games when you don't have a lineup full of sluggers, it's a lost art. And when you look at teams like the St. Louis Cardinals and and the Seattle Mariners, I think uh, those organizations and those teams are doing the things, the little things to win baseball games, because when you look at their team as a whole, you would think, nope, that's not a playoff team, but they're there. So one thing we were debating in the chat uh, in our staff chat for just baseball is uh, the difference between luck and just them doing some of the things like you said. So for the Mariners, how much of this is luck versus maybe a really tight clubhouse? Because something that sticks in my mind is like Kendall Graveman after he got traded their closer, they traded him away around the deadline to the Astros and he was crying. He went from a team that was everybody thought was going to fade to a team that could win the World Series. And he was crying and shocked that he was traded, which tells me, of course, he very much enjoyed Seattle and enjoyed the team. How much of this is these guys just liking to play with each other? As a player, can you kind of provide some insight as to how much that can impact winning versus losing? Is that playing a big part, you think, in what we're seeing from the Cardinals or especially what we're seeing from this Mariners team, which to me is filled with a bunch of grinders who've been passed on by other teams with a chip on their shoulder uh, that most of them aren't high end uh, top end talent guys. And the guys that are, are the rookies. So they're still humble. That's what I kind of see with the Mariners dynamic. A hundred percent. You know, I was on two winning teams in 1997. We had a bunch of veterans that were, kind of high profile players they put together right at the, before the off season that year. And we were built to do what we did. We were put together to win a world series and we did just that. And not only did we have great players, high profile type players, but we all jailed very well in the clubhouse. We all played together very well as a team. Fast forward to 2003, this team is put together and 
was given basically no chance to win anything. They were not expected to win anything as far as postseason is concerned. They're 10 games under 500 in mid-May. Jack McKeon is hired as the manager, which is just pulling something out of the dark. I mean, how does that even happen? He replaces, gets in there, and the Florida Marlins had the best record in baseball for mid-May until the end of the season. And when you looked in that team in paper, it kind of reminds me of the Seattle Mariners. It's like, yeah, there's some good players, but you got – Dontrell Willis is a rookie. Miguel Cabrera is a rookie. Yeah, you you can see hindsight now and say those guys were superstars, but they weren't at that point. They were just getting their feet wet. Mike Lowell was as consistent as they get, and he was having a huge year, but he got hurt. And you look around the the, the infield, you know, we got up the middle, Luis Castillo and, and Alex Gonzalez, who were known for their defense. You know, Luis Castillo is known for his 33 game hitting streak, but they're not offensive juggernauts. that you'd say, Oh my God, those guys are going to score a ton of runs. Uh, Derek Lee over at first base, you know, he hadn't had a huge, huge year yet. So on paper, that's the kind of team I'm looking at when I see the Seattle Mariners is that in the clubhouse, these guys have so much confidence in each other to be able to go up in the plate. And I don't believe in the whole luck thing when it's this much consistency throughout a season. I agree. You, you, I, I throw the luck thing out, out of the equation. That's not, it's not luck. They're not doing this by luck. They're doing it because Thank you. they're a tight knit bunch of guys in that clubhouse and they believe in each other and they think in their minds, they have a chance to win every single night. They take that field. Absolutely. And you can tell, you can see it. it it's palpable. And what you mentioned, I was going to ask you if, if it reminded you a little bit of O3, but I feel like any time a underrated team is, is doing well, I, I'm almost forcing it. Like, is this like your O3 team? But this one does have a lot of reminiscent aspects to it. The only thing they're really missing, though, is, is the pitching. But even pitching. at that point, did you know 23-year-old Josh Beckett was going to carry the team through the postseason? Maybe someone yes. steps up. Maybe that's Chris <laughs> Flexen. Who knows? Who knows? But what I love about the balance of that team, too, that we're looking at the Marlins is you don't really have anybody with an OPS over 900. You talk about Miggy. Yes, he, he did well and he had great moments in the postseason, but he was four for 24 in the World Series. He hit 268 uh, with a 790 OPS, which is good, but it's not like he was uh, prime Miguel Cabrera getting thrown in there. He was a 20 year old. And so there was a lot of just surprise and a lot of cohesiveness that allowed the winning uh, that, you know, it goes back to what we'll probably talk about in the next episode is you guys never felt out of it, making that comeback in Chicago after, after the Bartman mm. incident, which we're going to finally talk about in the next episode. Like those are the things that a team that has just this relentless attitude can do. I, I don't think most teams would take that out given back to them and, and be able to just continue to go. That's something that is built right from the, the whole year. Like that's, that's a confidence that is built over the course of the year, knowing that the guys around you, I feel like are bought in that really helps you yourself when you're on the field, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. you know that uh, if I don't get my job done, the guy behind me, I have total confidence in him to get the job done. So that permeates the whole clubhouse. And there's just a sense of unity that doesn't happen very often. You know, it doesn't happen very often. And when it does, it's something special. And that's why, you know, I look at those two teams and that separated them from all the other good teams that I was ever on. Is that just that magical air of confidence, that magical air of unity that we had in that clubhouse all came together the right way in one year. And I'm a big believer that that's why we won. So to wrap up on the Mariners now, though, I mean, how much can they ride that wave? Is Are they without without pitchers with, with Marco Gonzalez or Chris Flexen being your best postseason starter, potentially? Uh, they're bringing up 
a prospect, Matt Brash, who I really like, but we're, it's a rookie making his first start uh, in the next day or two. They've got Logan Gilbert, who is a top prospect, but again, rookie. Uh, there's there's a lot of questions there. Can they ride this wave and create havoc in a seven-game set? Why not? Why not? They're hot right now. You know, we talked about this before. When you go into the postseason, it's not about the best team. It's about the hottest team and who gets hot at the right time. And, you know, you kind of think, well, look at the Cardinals. They've got a 17-game winning streak. Are they at the end, the tail end of that? Because it's going to end at some point and things aren't going to go as well. So uh, I don't know if there's any anxiousness in that clubhouse saying, oh, my God, you know, we still have four games to go before we end the season or five games to go before we end the season. And... You know, is that can we ride that wave even longer? Because they still have another three weeks that they need a wave to ride in October to make it to the World Series. Same with the Seattle Mariners; they're they're on a wave right now. They're riding it. They're eight out of ten, or nine out of ten in their last games. They've won. They got to finish it up here because they're still a half game back, and then ride that wave as long as they can into October. And um, it's a tough thing to do. That's a it's emotionally a very difficult thing to do is to ride that kind of high that long. <clears throat> I, I agree. I, I've actually thought about the same thing. I'm like, do, do you want this? Did it start like five games too early for them? Uh, it's going to be fun to see how it all ends up. They clinched though. So it, it's going to be that one game playoff where they're going to have to find a way to beat most likely Max Scherzer and the Mariners. I look the way they've been hitting it. I think anything can happen with them too uh, in a one game playoff. If they make it against any of the blue Jays, Red Sox, Yankees, it should be a close one. Uh, we're going to talk about the NL MVP, which is a really interesting debate uh, in terms of the, the main two guys in Bryce Harper and Juan Soto. But before we get there, uh, I want to get to the Jersey, which I can see blue piping with a white shirt. So I'm going to guess Braves Jersey. What's the jersey? Rays? Come on, man. We're Mariners. We're talking oh, okay, about. okay. You want Mariners. You want Mariners. Okay. Well, I've got a Mariners behind me too, actually. I see and that. That guy's Ken Griffey. So that will have to be my first guess is Ken Griffey Jr. Negative. <clears throat> That's my favorite player of all time. So I would have been I, I would have been upset if I if I didn't see that jersey yet. But I don't know if I've seen that in your in your collection. Uh other Mariner. Randy Johnson. Nope. <laughs> Damn, I thought that was a good one. That was a good one. That was a good one. Mariner, same year playing time, I'm assuming. Yep. Oh, gosh. Ichiro. Yes. There it is. Of course. And the, the, the tie to Ichiro is is obvious. Love it. That looks great. Uh, really cool. And by the way, if you're listening on Apple, you can see uh, the video on YouTube at Just Baseball Media, where we have these episodes up there as well. Uh, that's a sweet jersey. Uh, I'm assuming you got it. Signed though before because it would Way be a before. Marlins jersey, obviously, if you got it signed when he was with the fish. Uh, so I mean, we've talked a little bit about Ichiro. I loved your story about going to Tokyo, uh, to you know, finalize the signing, uh, with David Sampson and just seeing the entire just brigade of media to see how important he is. This is one of the guys that probably when you got this signed was breaking records, breaking George Sisler's single season hit record and, and doing things that we haven't really seen. He was the most exciting player in baseball. Like I would pay money to go watch Ichiro play when he was with the Mariners. I mean, he was absolutely 
remarkable. I mean, the way he hits, you would teach nobody how to hit yeah, like no he hits. I mean, he's basically running out of the box before he makes contact, which makes his hand-eye coordination skills top of the top of the top of the line. I've never seen anything like it. And the way he combined speed and finesse and uh, arm strength and athleticism in the outfield and power when he wanted to, you know, nobody even really knows. He knows everybody knows Ichiro is a slap hitter and singles guy, but. When you ever saw him take batting practice, he was one of the most remarkable batting practice guys you've ever seen. He could hit 15 in a row out of any stadium. And he loved to do that. He loves it. He goes, everybody knows it. And that, that's how he explained it. He'd go yard, yard, yard. And while everyone else is going the other way, you know, uh, as far as batting practice, he goes, everybody knows I can go the other way. I want to go home runs. So that's what he did. He went home run, home run, home run in batting practice. But, um, you know, just an electric uh, personality, electric player. Um, and he was awful to play against because uh, he had an impact on the game negatively as an opponent. But uh, I really enjoyed watching him perform. I mean, what he was able to do. 3,000 hits, almost 3,100 hits in 19 years. Not really 19 years. It was 17 seasons because he only played 17 games in his age 44 and age 45 seasons. You look at his first 10 years, those years with the Mariners before he ends up leaving. And it seemed like right when he was moving on to the Yankees and then bouncing around a little bit, he was hitting 36 and he still was able to preserve some, some relevancy and some value. Even with the Marlins, he was a fantastic bat off the bench for a couple seasons. I, it was a blast to even watch him there in the twilight of his career, but through those first, uh, I would say about eight seasons with the Marlins or with, with the Mariners, that is, excuse me, eight, nine seasons, he hit three thirty. <laughs> and he hit 82 home runs. Like he got into the power when he needed to, he stole 327 bases and I got a chance to watch him in the uh, batting practice, see him hit a little bit and watch him go upper deck. No problem. You think he could have won a home run derby if he really wanted to? Everyone wanted to, everyone wanted him to participate. Everyone wanted him to go out there and do that, but he never, <clears throat> he never did. And I think he definitely could have. <laughs> That's crazy to me. He could win. Why? Just his bat speed his raw bat speed or what, what, what was so imp- like, what, what, how was he able to do so much and, not the most imposing stature, a, a very unconventional swing. How was he able to hit for so much power? He just used his body probably better than I've ever seen anyone as far as when I want to launch in batting practice, he put everything he had into it. He had to, because like you said, he wasn't that big a guy, um, but he just would be able to groove this swing, this uppercut swing. And like I said, with his hand-eye coordination, uh, he's so precise with it. He could hit the bottom part of the baseball every single time. And he backspun it out of there. Like you wouldn't believe even with the Marlins, it's at the very end, he's 40 some years old, 41 years old. And he's launching stuff at Marlins park into the upper deck every day during batting practice. And uh, it was just something he was really, really good at. You think if he played 20 full seasons uh, and how many hits do you think he could have finished? Like, could he have hit 4,000? Like could he, if he had another four or five seasons, uh, in his prime, it would have been right. He started at 27 years old in the United States playing in major. Well, League. people forget that he came to the United States with like 1400 hits. Yeah. He was the the batting champion for four or five years over in Japan. He comes here with uh, 1400 hits already. And then when you tack that onto the 3,100, he got here. I mean, obviously there's nobody that's gotten more hits than Ichiro. And absolutely. If he comes over here as a 20 year old player, I think he breaks all kinds of records. Yeah, because it's not like it took him some time to get acclimated. 
<laughs> he won first season. Of year in MVP. He had three fifty. First season. What did he have? Two hundred and sixty-five hits that year. He had two hundred and forty-two that year, and then three years later, he had two sixty-two. Like two sixty-two in one hundred and sixty-two games. That's insane. It doesn't make sense. And that that was immediately he had two forty-two, and then just got better and better. So you imagine he plays five years in the MLB. He probably doesn't quite match those numbers because 27 is like your exact prime. But even if he's a hair off, if he's at 200 hits, even for five years, that's a thousand hits. He's at 4,000. And I think that's a low, low estimate. That's pretty damn cool. And just exemplifies how good he is. Not to mention that he would have had probably 700 plus stolen bases as well. Uh, So just a special, special player. And by all accounts, and I'm sure you can corroborate this, a very, very kind person and as like formal and respectable and respectful as, as you can find. hundred percent. I mean, you know, when you go over and watch, uh, we went over there and got to see a spring training uh, workout in Japan and the way they conduct themselves, the honor that they feel that is bestowed upon them to be able to put on a uniform and play professionally is, is unmatched. And um, it was really cool to see Ichiro over there uh, while we got to go see his signing and in his culture and his element and the adoration and the um, where they put him, you know, you think Michael Jordan's big over here. Ichiro is 10 times bigger in Japan than Michael Jordan is here in the U S and um, it's, it, it, he's just a, a humble uh, respectful superstar. And you don't, you don't see that anymore. Yep. And well, I, I'll correct you on that one. We're seeing it with Shohei now, who I think is the LeBron. I think he's going to be like that LeBron for them yeah. it's like for, for the entire country of Japan, because he's been so incredible while being humble. And even the way that it came out, of course, people are going to spin your words. It's like, I want to win. And they're like, Oh, he wants out of LA. And he's like, no, I, that's not what I said. Uh, but just I, the way he carries himself, the, the way Shohei approaches the game, it, it seems like it, I don't think that the, a lot of the way that guys play today would fly in the Japanese leagues. It seems like there's I mean, didn't didn't Ichiro used to apologize if he didn't place his bat down gently? Uh, I think there was a couple of times where he threw it and he like apologized. And uh, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. It's to different, me. different game, different uh, perspective. Him? They even they even told the American players that uh, we saw the uh, Oryx Buffaloes spring training and they took an infield and it was literally the first day of spring training and they told the American players to sit down and watch the way we do it here because oh, first God. day of infield outfield you know when you go to spring training in major league they're flipping the ball around you know it's very casual. Uh uh-uh. uh. In Japan, it was a hundred percent right from day one. These guys are throwing laser beams everywhere. It's crisp. It's flawless. It's like my jaw was on the ground, you know. So I can imagine what the American players are like. Oh wow, well, we got to step it up here. Yeah, and it, it even goes to the little league, right? I, we didn't get to see Japan in this year's little league world series, unfortunately, due to COVID. But they always have a team of just such young, exciting, focused talented players that just do the fundamentals, right? They're not getting picked off. They're not, they're not messing up those little things that uh, we see big leaguers uh, do and, and, and mis- make mistakes with uh, nowadays. But I want to get, before we wrap up, the last thing here is the NL MVP, because this is something that has been 
discussed a little bit more now. It seemed like Tatis was the runaway for a while, and he's hit a bit of a wall when we talk about moving to right field and not providing much defensive value. And then you have Bryce Harper and Juan Soto who have come alive on a different level, just a different level of, of what they are doing right now. And the Phillies probably not going to make the playoffs. The Nationals are going to lose 95 plus games, but the Phillies are still in it. They're not eliminated yet with several games to go. And if it weren't for Harper, he would, the, the Phillies would be way out of the race. And I think that matters, but you have people that are saying, well, Soto is having the better individual season. Soto's hitting 318 with a 468 on base and a 545 slugging. Bryce Harper, 311 with a 433 on base, but a 617 slugging, which is just absurd. There's obviously the debate that Harper's playing more meaningful games right now. Uh, but people, some people say it's most valuable player, not most valuable player for a good team. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's been uh, quite the juggling act we've seen with this NL MVP this year, hasn't it? It's been uh, Tatis's to lose at the beginning. He's going to, they're going to give it to him basically. Well, the fall from grace for the Padres, I think pulled his stock way down. I mean, he's still having a phenomenal year, still yeah. have a phenomenal year. Cause you got to think about he's leading the national league at home runs with 41. He missed a month's worth of games. That's crazy. He's missed over 30 games this year because of injury. And he's still leading the national league at home runs. What if he gets those 30 games back? You know, we're looking at a 50, possibly 60 home run season. I mean, that's insane what he could possibly put up, but that didn't happen. He went to the outfield. He has not played great defensively out in the outfield. I think that hurt his stock a little bit as well. But when you look at what Bryce Harper has meant to the Philadelphia Phillies in the second half, like you said, he's kind of carried that team. And if they do make the playoffs, that will seal the deal for Bryce Harper. Oh, I agree. Without him in their lineup. Soto obviously is one of the greatest young talents we've seen in baseball. He's only 22 years old. He's got 139 walks. Harper's next with 90 something. And there's not even another guy in the hundreds. He's got 139 with that out gaudy four, four sixty-eight on base percentage. So the, the most incredible uh, combination of power and patience at the plate. Soto's just a stud and he's going to win his share of MVPs absolutely going to win MVP if he doesn't win it this year. But I give the nod to Bryce Harper right now, just because like you said, he's, he's been in more meaningful games and without his contribution to that team, the Phillies aren't where they are. Not no chance. So if you flip flop them, right. Harper's back on the nationals and Soto's on the Phillies. Soto's the MVP. I think so. So we're, we're talking about most valuable player, you know, not the best player. There are other awards for that. You know, they got the Hank Aaron award and they got other awards for, you know, uh, the sporting news player of the year, you know, they got other, other awards to give to the, the best player. But when you talk about most valuable, I think it's got to come into the equation that what you've done for your team in that season to help them be competitive and to be relevant in the playoff discussion. I agree. And even though people will say, oh, but it's most valuable player, not most valuable player on a winning team. It's just one of those unspoken things. I feel like that just goes into the award. It's almost undeniable. It's like, well, we're talking about the best player. Well, he's got to be on a team that's relevant, a team that's doing something. And it's not to say that. So it's Soto's fault without Soto, they might lose 110 games, but it doesn't matter to me as much. I think Soto's happily taking his free passes He's not looking to do damage as, as desperately as Harper. He's getting one pitch to hit 
And if it's 3-0, no matter what the count is, he's jumping on it because I don't know if he'll ever admit it, but I'm sure he doesn't have the most confidence that the guys behind him are going to drive him in right now because your best other your other best hitter right now is JT Romuto, who's got a high 700 OPS. You've got some other guys that have swung it decently well. Reese Hoskins being out really killed them. And I, if I'm Bryce Harper, it, it's I'm going to say it's me. I got to do it. I got to do it. And that's exactly what he's done. He has been a one-man wrecking crew. And it, it's just been incredible to see. They have now two more games against the Braves. They basically have to win out. And it's, it's going to be difficult for them. On the NL side of things, though, we'll have the Cardinals and the Dodgers. That's basically solidified now. So we have a Wainwright versus probably Max Scherzer situation. This is the last thing I'll ask you. Adam Wainwright has given you a lot of reason to believe in him in this year. This year, I mean, in the second half, he's been spectacular. He's a vet. He's a gamer. He does all the things that you want to see from a pitcher. That being said, he's not a swing and miss, lights out, go eight shutout innings guy that you're hoping Max Scherzer is going to be in this wild card game. How do you approach it if you're the manager of the St. Louis Connors? If you're Mike Schilt, how are you approaching this game? Are you, your bullpen's not the deepest in the world either. But are you going Wayno with, with a quick yank? Or are you letting Wayno battle out there even if he gives up a couple runs and uh, assuming that he can battle better than maybe going to your middle reliever. How do you approach it? Uh, if you're Mike Schilt? Well, it's a, t- it's a tough call because, you know, Wainwright, obviously he's a, a, a veteran and I think he's the type of pitcher that's going to give the Dodgers some trouble because he's not a high velo guy. He's got that uh, massive curveball that, that he can pinpoint for strikes. And I think those are the kind of pitchers that kind of give that lineup trouble. So, you know, Unless he gets into massive trouble, I think they'll let him work it out a little bit. And um, that's the thing about the one card playoff. It's all hands on deck. It's a do or die game. You don't want to fall behind. Well, especially against a guy like Max Scherzer. I mean, if he's going out there and, and Wainwright gives up two in the first. Good luck. You know, you don't want to panic with that situation, but, but then again, you want to do whatever you can to, to win that game. You have to win that game. So uh, that's a tough game to call uh, with Wainwright on the mound. And if he gets in any kind of trouble early on, you know, I think they have to go to the bullpen. And the best news about the postseason coming up is that no more runner on second base with the extra innings. So you can happily watch baseball again. Love uh, that. I'm getting upset, Uh, but I'm excited. We got the last week here. Uh, There's there could be a five way tie, by the way. There's a feasible scenario. It's unlikely, obviously, but there's a five-way tie in the AL in which there is no rule in place for that. So Rob Manfred, it would go to his desk and we would let him make the, 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 I think would obviously be the great decision and decide what would be the solution to a five-team playoff. I'm sure Rob Manfred would make the best choice and everybody would be very happy. Uh, So let's hope that the five-way playoff or five-way tie doesn't happen, but the fact that that's even a scenario is a testament to how much parity we have this year. And I'm going to give you your last word here. Do the Mariners pull off the miracle half game out four to go? Can they make some magic happen? I want to see it. I really do. I want to see this team make this uh, postseason. Um, just because I love the underdog and I love uh, what they're doing over there. So I'm going to say, yes, I'm going, to say go. they, they pull, I'm going to say they pull it off. Let's go. If they do it, we'll be digging this clip back up. If they don't, we'll bury it and pretend it never happened. (laughs) Exactly. That'll do it for today's episode. 
by the next time we record, it'll be Tuesday. We'll have the playoff picture set and uh, we'll have some playoff stories that I'm excited about and a little bit of analysis here on the matchups and uh, a lot of vets, a lot of big names uh, in this postseason that are ready to go. So it should be a lot of fun. Uh, That'll do it for today. And we'll talk to you on Tuesday.